The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome to the Measure Success Podcast, where we feature top leaders on how they measure success in their business and life. Now, let's learn from their experiences. Carl J. Cox here, and I'm the host of the Measure Success Podcast, where we talk with top leaders about effective strategies that inspire success. This episode is brought to you by 40 Strategy. At 40 Strategy, we work with CEOs and their leadership to help them reach their destination by learning how to maximize their people, process, and systems to be one effective team to get to where they want to be. If you want to learn more, go to 40strategy.com. Before we talk about our guest here, Carl Elamar, I'd like to always do a shout out. That shout out today is to one of my longtime friends, Grant Stockton. Grant is a partner at Brigby, uh, Brisby and Stockton. But more importantly, we've been friends for over 30 years and we have a fun thing we're doing today. This is not going to be released until a bit afterwards, but we're going to be doing our 31st Christmas shopping day together. So Merry Christmas to you, Grant, and uh, to everyone, the guests, once again, or happy holidays uh, for whoever, however you celebrate your holidays. And uh, Grant, thank you so much for being a good friend. And with that, we get to introduce our guest, Carl. This is our first one who shares the same name as, as we do, uh, as I do, uh, except he spells his with a K. Uh, Carl Alomar is a tech investor, serial entrepreneur, and most well-known for building DigitalOcean from the ground up, which is one of the fastest growing cloud infrastructure companies that has become a strong challenger to Amazon. DigitalOcean is now valued at over $10 billion and with the ticket symbol of DOCM. Carl is also the co-founder and CEO for China Export Finance, as well as Clearview Networks. He holds an electrical engineering degree from Imperial College in London, and he received his MBA from Columbia Business School, and he currently holds a position of managing partner at venture firm M13. And with that, Carl, welcome to the Measure Success Podcast. Thank you, Carl. I, it's going to be interesting calling each other Carl back and forth the whole way through. But uh, I'm known for being Carl with the K. I always get a hard time about that, but I always say it. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and you, we also, I appreciate you said at the beginning, so you know what my name is. And, and now you can tell the audience how you listened to me in the early years in London. So yeah. Growing up in London, Carl Cox, you were a great electronic DJ. You looked a little bit different back then somehow. Yes, but, uh, yes, I guess it must be you, right? Uh, well, we, we are different people, but uh, yeah, it is fun. I always especially enjoy people who come from um, Europe and in other places because Carl Cox is the, is the famous DJ. By the way, for those who wonder why I do Carl J. Cox, it's because of that. Um, because if you look up Carl Cox on the internet, you will find somebody who looks a little bit darker complexion and um, is on uh, doing DJ videos all the time. So, so very let's go. Time, very tough. Yes. Be very talented. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, and if I was uh, with you in Miami right now, nearly 80 degrees, as opposed to being here in Northwest Oregon, where it's 34 degrees currently, I definitely prefer your background that you have there. Carl, tell us a little bit more about uh, your current company, what you're doing, and some more insights behind that. 
Yeah, so uh, M13's a venture firm. I've been, as you alluded to before, an operator for 20 plus years. Started a couple of companies myself, uh, joined DigitalOcean in the very early days and helped grow it. And uh, all of that, you know, experience and, and all of the growth and the challenges and everything that I've gone through led me to a point where as we were, I was always thinking about the next stage of my career and I was thinking about working with more of a portfolio, working with a wider set of entrepreneurs and a wider set of ideas. You know, how could we build a venture firm that could actually really differentiate and really be the ultimate solution or ultimate support mechanism for the founders that we work with? And, you know, we might dig into it a bit more, but but the bottom line is we, we built M13. I joined the two founders to build Fund2. And now we're on Fund3. It's a $400 million fund. We invest in uh, technology startups, you know, Five to fifteen million dollar checks is our core investment, uh, usually around the Series A or the seed stamp stage of the business. So many questions I could go off of that here. From it's very really interesting. I mentioned you before the podcast. I just happened to finish the book High Growth Handbook by Elad Gill, and and one of the things that you talk about is you know how to help grow a company a hundred x, you know faster than you think is typically possible. So. When you're making an investment, you have an expectation, right, of there being a return on that investment. So yeah. how do you get the founders who have perhaps grown significantly to think about that kind of triple digit, right, growth metric versus something that's, quote unquote, just 10x, right? You know, how do you get people thinking that mindset? Just 10x isn't terrible. Like, you know, <laughs> people are growing businesses really, really, really exciting ways, you know, I think there's two different types of business. There's businesses that are kind of block and tackle, you know, month over month grind businesses that can grow and be very successful. And then there's businesses that are just machines and they grow uh, organically themselves. I think that both businesses could be good, but they take a very, very different workload. They take very, very different effort. We've invested in both types of business. But for me personally, I'm always super excited when I begin to recognize in the business model an opportunity for a, a machine to be built, which they feel is what we did at DigitalOcean. And when that happens, you're not actually having to drive growth anymore. You're actually having to keep up with growth. Hmm. But I think the secret to 100x growth is to find that magic, find that viral magic that allows a business to grow organically. It's all based around the product and the business model that you're offering to the market, the ability for it to scale, the ability for it to attract customers organically, and, and then really managing the operational aspects of the business to make sure that you are providing the best service and maintaining the quality of your offering with the scale. With you know, 100x scale is an incredible challenge for any operator to be able to deal with. So I, it's, it's tough to go to a company and try and force 100x growth on an existing business model. What we try and do is recognize the companies that are demonstrating an opportunity for that growth already. And then how do we help them refine that machine, get that machine working more efficiently, and then more importantly, building the foundational, you know, underpinnings that, that allow the machine to be successful and, and you know, fruitful in growth. You, you said something really interesting there is when a company, you're actually trying to keep up with it because there is such a demand for the product in the marketplace that it's serving. What are those uh, characteristics that compels a product to all of a sudden switch from being something that you quote unquote have to sell where people are clamoring for it. They feel like it's something that they need. What, what is that in your opinion, kind of intangible it that forces people to say, this is something that I really uh, have to drive and buy. Yeah. 
it's firstly it's very difficult to predict like the the main way people build companies or build ideation is you know what's the problem what's the solution right so you can first step is make sure you're actually solving a problem right because if you're not solving a problem then it's a nice to have and not a need to have so let's say you get that right you've figured out a problem this is a need to have you're solving you know an issue that you know people need to solve or you're just improving um, a process that people need to go through and, and are much more likely to use the improved version of it. But then once you've done that part, it really is a lot about the customer reaction. And there are a lot of mechanisms by which you can start thinking about how do I empower the customer to drive this machine rather than me having to drive it myself. So how do I provide that autonomous, you know, autonomy in the system make sure it's self-serve, make sure I'm building, you know, an easy way to refer, an easy way to bring in your, your network, an easy way to kind of allow this thing to expand organically. The product for me has always been the key driver that, that really drives growth. The marketing that goes on top of that is simply a layer that just puts fuel on that. So, you know, if you've got a product that's really driving people through the funnel effectively is, you know, driving organic referrals, driving expansion, driving usage, those types of things, then layer on top of it, you know, the right brand and marketing approach, engage the community, speak to, speak to your customers at their level, understand your customers at their level, and, and those all start adding fuel to the fire. But it really all starts with just getting an idea that actually solves a problem, putting it out there and trying to catch the wind, like, you know, catch, catch the audience in a, in a way that gets them to begin to take over the growth trajectory for you, rather than you having to push it and drive it every day. It's interesting. You talk about that, that you believe that the product is one of the key drivers behind once again, and the why is because it's solving ultimately a problem. You know, it's, it's, I love it how you said it's a need to have, as opposed to a want to have type, type part. So you have this now new need to have, now you have the engineering team or the product team and they're like, they're not ready yet to ship it. I think one of the biggest challenges is getting to that minimum, that MVP, the minimum viable product to get people to ship. How do you get your investment companies to have that confidence to ship it rather than hold back, right? Because they're, they're worried about the next fun feature or functionality that they think that's holding back the growth. Well, first of all, product is beyond just the digital uh, product is beyond just the engineering effort. So in a lot of cases, you'll find the product extends. The way that I think about it is kind of look at the whole customer journey and the customer journey is your product. For some companies, that customer journey is purely digital, but for some companies, there's a combination of digital and physical experience that they go through. And so you have to think of that in its entirety. Having said that, the beautiful thing about digital products is the ability to iterate and evolve. I mean, we've been learning this for the last 10, 15 years. I think, uh, Later, we'll talk about one of my favorite books, which speaks specifically to this, but the ability to evolve is, is so quick that you can make a terrible mistake and fix it before anybody even realizes it's out there. So the, the key is without understanding how your customers are going to react to that product, you really don't have true information. You're just making assumptions. So getting a product out there and having people react to it will tell you immediately how you should iterate and improve that product. And I, I think that most product teams that, are, that we work with 
are in a place at this, you know, at this stage of business, you know, business development, like this era, are at a stage where they kind of get that. They kind of understand that. They're very comfortable with that idea. We've had less problem with the idea of people just getting that MVP out there. There are a couple of situations where we have these perfectionists that don't do it, and it's a challenge. But but I do agree with you. Like, get it out there, put it in front of people, and see what it does, and just do it in a smart way where you're not, you know, digging a hole for yourself, but rather setting yourself up for like continuous improvement as you go forward. So what what you're really saying? It's interesting. Of, of when something gets shipped out, you are not done right? You, you've oh, just begun the phase to learn, right? To learn how your customer's reacting to it. So therefore, because I think it's, it's common where there's this, oh, we launched it, we're done and we're not moving forward. But so are, are most of your teams, are they doing an agile type philosophy, right? Where they're yeah. doing sprints basis to help improve and reiterate the product? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think one of the best teams um, that I've worked with to have this is a, uh, an AI coaching app called Bunch bunch.ai. Uh, so they provided a coaching app, which allows people to get, you know, two minutes a day of guidance and begin is now beginning to move in the idea of building peer networks and creating reviews and creating opportunities for people to develop themselves as managers and leaders. Um, really fantastic product. But they literally started by setting up a WhatsApp group and providing, you know, creating an open WhatsApp group that ended up having more and more kind of people in it and just providing tips that were, you know, the, the CEO, Daria, you know, was highly educated in, in organizational um, psychology and things like that. So, and there was a lot of theories and stuff that they had kind of in their pockets and they were beginning to deliver those. And they just started speaking to this audience on WhatsApp and the audience was telling them, this is great. This is what we like. This is what we don't like. Eventually they went to test flight. They did, I don't know, a hundred different iterations in test flight to kind of continue to tweak the numbers. And then eventually they, they launched and in launching have created a system that is just incredibly engaging, organic, the numbers are really doing well now. But, it, you know, the first product that came out with was just like, you know, a framework, it was nothing. That team has been so good at testing and learning and iterating that it builds just such confidence in your belief that they're going to get to that ultimate product that, that the customers want and need. And, and that's exciting to see that. And so that that's, they're an incredible example of kind of that agile product iteration that, that we're talking about. I appreciate you bringing that. You said Bunch AI, is that that? Yeah, Bunch yeah. AI. Yeah, it's great. Everyone should try it. It's a fantastic uh, platform. That's great. I thank you for bringing that up. So it's interesting. One, one of you have these partners that you have with M13 who have had some teams that have come from Lyft and Ring and SpaceX. What have you learned from them that you've been able to apply? Like, there's a, is there two or three things that, that they are consistently and re regular doing? Like, I need to apply that, meaning you, you need to apply that to what you're doing on a regular basis. Are you referring to the partners in the, in the team that are operating partners? Yes, correct. So, so let me give a little background on that. So what we did when we built, we talked earlier about what M13 was and, and kind of trying to be the real operators firm, like a venture as a service type of offering. And so what we did is we actually invested in building this operating team of really senior executives that all have incredible backgrounds within, within tech and within growth startups, right from the early stages to the late stages. So as I mentioned before, we think about growth in two ways. We think about it as what drives growth but also how do you manage it? And so we built you know, these vertical areas of expertise. And we, so we have people that are 
you know, experts in brand and comms, experts in talent, experts in data, experts in product, finance, operations, performance marketing, like all very key areas of expertise and have worked with some pretty illustrious companies from Virgin, Kitty Hawk, DigitalOcean, of course, uh, Guilt Group, you know, a whole bunch of different really successful businesses over the last decade or two. And so what we've done, I mean, I learn every day. I love putting people around me that, that I learn from. I mean, they, they're so good at what they do that you, you know, you're in awe every day when you're dealing with challenges that the portfolio are dealing with and you're kind of seeing how they resolve it. But there are a lot of very common and consistent things that companies look to, to resolve. So for an example, pricing, how do I price my product? And so what we've done is we've worked with our data group to create a, a kind of program that we take a founder through that allows them to understand their stakeholders, their stakeholder journeys, like all the different steps that take them to a place where they can get to a very confident pricing hypothesis that then we have a testing protocol for. Mm-hmm. So we've tried to use that expertise and in areas where it's a regular, you know, common ask, we've packaged it and, and kind of trying to make it easy for companies to avoid you know, in my career, I've spent a year dealing with a problem that I didn't know how to, pro- to deal with. And it's wasted time, it's delayed things, it's cost resources, and it's slowed us down. And if we can help all the companies in our portfolio, all the founders, avoid that and just accelerate through these challenges because there are tried and true ways to, to optimize any of these challenges that they face, then that's, you know, that's a big, big win. And we think that, that gives them a huge advantage over their competitors in the market. So, so yeah, I mean, they range from pricing, organizational structure, you know, how to develop culture, how, you know, brand and communications, messaging, PR, like a whole bunch of different components of things that businesses have to think about as they, you know, building a data stack, you know, things like that, like how they, what things they have to solve for to, to optimize the performance of their businesses. Yeah. So I love this. So you basically created a bunch of mini problem solving issues, right? That companies are typically running into and you find a way to package it to accelerate the learning process for each respective company that you have, which, which sounds brilliant, uh, first of all, to be able to have something like that to help make that whole process easier. You know, one of the things that's obviously top of mind for most organizations right now is talent, right? Yeah. You know, uh, talent is a real challenge out there right now to do all the reasons that everybody knows. What what strategies are you finding to have success with attracting and retaining talent? Yeah, that's a, that's a great, great question. So it's so important that literally as we start thinking about what are our major objectives for next year as a firm, talent is one of the major four objectives that we have in terms of how we're going to really build, a, build the M13 platform. And so we're, we're focusing a lot on building a whole kind of talent network and community that theoretically could really support and facilitate, you know, best in class hiring for our, for our founders. But when we think about, you know, the founders themselves finding and retaining talent, we approach that relatively programmatically too. The first thing to note is, you know, when they come to us, when we invest more often than not, they're getting a big injection of capital and they're in a real growth spot. So we know that they're going to grow, maybe they're 20, 30, 40 people, and they're probably going to double or triple in size over the following year. That immediately, what most founders don't recognize, and, and I went through this myself with DigitalOcean especially, is the strain, the cultural strain it puts on the organization and the change the organization has to go through to be able to handle that level of growth. 
So back in 2014, we went through that. We hired about 100 people in a year. We were at 40 or 50 people and we, we hired 100 on top. And in doing so, we just made so many mistakes. We did not create a structured organization. We didn't think about organizational change, communication, you know, work management, workflow management, all the different things that like ultimately drive great performance crazy. Cause they're like, what am I doing? I don't have any real targets or goals. I don't really understand what's happening. So we hired a hundred, we probably lost at least half of them. And the ones we lost were probably all the best players. Mm. And at the end of that year, we kind of came to a, you know, intervention point where it was like, we got to fix this because, you know, great. The numbers are looking good. We built a machine, but we're going to implode if we don't get this right. So over the next year, I kind of took the reins on that piece, brought in Matt Hoffman, who's now with us at M13, and we rebuilt the whole organizational structure, communication strategy, cultural approach towards the organization. Literally a year later, we were listed as one of the top places to work in New York. So it went from cultural abyss to the best place to work. So the first thing I would say is really focus on what's changing in your organization and make sure that you're accommodating that with the right structure and the right communication strategy to maintain and drive culture. One thing I say to a lot of founders is when you have 15, 20 people in your team, you're probably talking to everybody every day, if not every week, right? Every, you have a touch point with everybody in the company. When you get to 50, 60, maybe 70, that's not happening anymore. You could probably point at people in the company you've never even spoken to at that point. Mm -hmm. And so now your culture is a Chinese whisper. It's not how you're delivering a message or what you're expecting. It's how somebody else is delivering that message. So if you're not able to put in, you know, good struck, good hierarchy where you have your lieutenants who can deliver the right message, good communication structure where you're able to actually communicate to the group as a whole and be much more transparent about where the company is going. Without those things in place, you're going to start losing, your organization is not going to be recognizable to you a year later. And so the first thing we think about is you're about to grow. How, you, how do you build those things? And one of the interesting things we recommend, which has worked out really, really well for founders, is one of your first hires should be a head of talent. And not necessarily a recruiter, but rather somebody who is, uh, their, their core goal, their core target is optimize the performance of my team. So hire the best people, onboard them as efficiently as possible, get them fully integrated and make sure that they're happy and fully engaged and, and you know, operating at 110%. That's what a head of talent does. And so, you know, a lot of cases we say that founders are like, why do we need that? No, we just need engineers. We just need this and that. Every single time they, that a founder has hired a head of talent, they've come back to us and said, that's the best hire I could make. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of a little bit of the secret to, you know, beginning to create an environment which is very attractive for high quality employees to want to come and work out because all of the all the reverberations spread like if your a players are happy they're going to tell all their friends who are probably a players and the reverberations are going to spread and you start seeing kind of an inbound excitement about wanting to work for the business and so that's that's probably kind of seedlings there's obviously a lot of other little uh pieces as you think about how do you want to build your leadership team how do you want to you know, how do you want to think about organizational design and, you know, what does your business actually do and how does that reflect on the way you've structured it? So all those little components are kind of sections of, of the way we approach that and help, help our founders do that. So I wanted to touch on, because you, you mentioned something, you, you hired head of talent, you said that term specifically, that's different than an HR director, so to speak. Yes. 
So explain to the audience what that difference is and why that's important. Well, first of all, I've always hated the term HR. <laughs> it feels so stoic and so like just, you know, very, very old school in that regard, like very enterprisey. I think, you know, other people call it head of people. You know, I think messaging and terminology has a big impact. Talent is what it is. You know, you want talented contributors that are going to really, really add value to your organization. It is, you know, when you think about HR, you're thinking about compliance. You're thinking about, you know, who, where do I go to complain about something? You know, how do I, how, you know, what's my PTO structure or what's my, you know, like all the rules and regulations. Talent is not about that. Talent, as I said, is about optimizing performance of the team. That's what it's about. So if you've got talented people, how do you get those people working at 110%? Honestly, it's all just terminology. Like it doesn't really matter what you call the role. It's just a, you know, a kind of a, a personal preference on how I think about it. And, and, and I do think that, you know, psychologically, whether people are conscious of it or not, I think it has an effect on the way people approach the job and the type of people that apply for the job. You know, you might have the right type of person who just won't apply because they don't necessarily want to be an HR person, but they love the idea of optimizing performance. And so... That's, that's the way I think about it, but it's probably just a silly personal preference that doesn't mean anything. Well, I, I, I don't. I actually, that's why I asked the question. I, I think yeah. it actually is very, very relevant because I did agree with what you said is HR has these historical connotations of I'm going to worry about my, as you said, my annual evaluation, right? Which is pretty dated these days, right? You know, if you're growing a company uh, from 50 to 100 employees to 150 employees to 200 employees, if you're waiting for an annual evaluation, that person's already left. Yeah. Like, you know, if they're not getting it. I don't even like, again, words, it's to me, it's not an evaluation. Yeah. It's a, it's a talent development review. It's mm. like, how, how are you going to develop this person and, you know, or feedback review? It's not about being evaluated for the job you're doing. It's about what, where do you want to be and how are you going to get there? How are you going to improve to get there? And so it's all, the words mean so much because they just change the way you think about the problem set. Yeah. Yep. I love that. I mean, I really do. That, that is a, I think such an important part because I, w one of the things of like that, that classic people going in to just complain in an office, like if that's where our, our organization is at, we have a, we have a problem, right? We're yeah. not, you know, if we, if people don't know what they're doing, of course they're going to complain. Right. But if, if they know what they're doing, you're us as managers are helping to clear obstacles so they can help get it done. That's what people are at the end of the day, like they want to feel like they can come into work and accomplish something, right? Yeah. You know, once again, whether that's physical or virtual. So another thing on the talent side, you know, there's been a blessing and a curse, if you may, from, from uh, the COVID world, right? Here, you and I, um, and I'm sure you've been using it for years like I have been, Zoom for you and I is normal, but it wasn't for everybody else, right? Until the past two years. Now, everybody, including our, our grandparents, right, can use, <laughs> use these tools how have, has, has that been a, a major part of a, when it comes to hiring talent, have you been able to hire th globally now because you're not restricted to hiring just in New York city, as an example, have you been able to take advantage of that? Yeah. I mean, I will say, I think we pioneered this in DigitalOcean, and again, Matt was right alongside me in this process, but we made a very early decision that we wanted the talent 
the best talent no matter where it was. And we actually ended up building a whole physical operation centered around the idea of accommodating, you know, hybrid remote and, and in-house teams. And so, you know, a lot of our most talented employees at DigitalOcean have and still are remote. The new CEO is based out of Boulder, Colorado. So, you know, there's, it's gone even beyond where we were. We, we, we kept the executive team pretty close in New York, but, you know, eventually we spread that as well. And now obviously it's, you know, fully, fully distributed. So reflecting on, on M13, obviously we see the same thing. We see a lot of engineering taking place um, abroad. We see just the facility of communications, as you said, has just changed the landscape so significantly. And what it actually speaks to, and something we may touch on or may not later, but, you know, one of the major themes that we even think about from an investing standpoint is what is the future of work? Like, how are people going to work? It's not only a case of people wanting to work remotely. We see more and more examples of people wanting to work when and how they choose for, for whomever they want at whatever time. They want to have freedom. And when you think about work-life balance, you know, life is becoming more prioritized, whereby historically your life was your work. Now it's more about, I have to, I want to live and enjoy my life. How do I work in a way that accommodates that? And, and that's the mindset of a lot of the young generation that are coming up. And, and there are so, so many tools and services and technologies that are literally designed to support that. And those are things that we find really, really exciting to invest in. Well, let, let's, why don't you just peel the onion a little bit more on that? I mean, because clearly that's a major trend right here, right? Of, of, we've been hitting on this talent part quite a bit and the need for it. You've said you've been in the leading edge of, of being working from home a long time ago or being accommodating or hybrid type work situations. But now you see this the younger generation, what is it, four over four million people have in the great resignation have left and not necessarily because of money. That's a monthly number, I think. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, thank you. But, uh, yeah, I mean, there's 42 million gig workers in, in the economy already, and that's probably going to increase significantly. I, I think gig workers was like the tip of the spear. I think it's now you're looking at people who are working for themselves, people who are just working remotely for a company. And then even beyond gig workers, you have this whole shift worker mentality where people want real jobs, but they just want to pick and choose the days they work and the, and the shifts they work and where they do it. So there's a really interesting move where, where it is, it is just nobody, people, you know, a lot of people don't want to sit in an office nine to five with a, you know, kind of a block and tackle job. They want to, they want to basically be out in the world and work in the environments that they enjoy. Having said that, there's always going to be people that are on the other scale that say, you know what, I really want to work in an office. You know, we're seeing interesting, we, we, we just uh, right, right now, actually, I think as of yesterday, made an investment in, in a company called Flexspace that is building a layer on top of all of kind of the flexible space working environments. And so they have kind of a backend tool for all of the buildings, but then they also work with a lot of the organizations that have multiple locations and they provide this ability in real time, not to lease by the month or by the year or by the decade, but on a daily basis, hey, I want to go work in a conference room or I want to go get a desk somewhere or I want to go park myself in, in this building for the day. And, and they have, you know, they're creating this layer that allows this whole category of workers to pick and choose where they physically want to be on a day-by-day basis. And so that really speaks to where the market is going and where you know, how, how the younger generations are wanting to, wanting to work. I experienced it firsthand at DigitalOcean. That was pre-COVID. 
COVID, you know, kind of accelerated it so aggressively that now you're in a place where nobody wants to be at home, stuffed at home, but they don't want to be in an office. So they're kind of trying to figure out, okay, what's the mix? What's the middle point? You know, where, where can I go work where I really can get my peace, but then I don't have to be stuck with the same four walls every day. That's interesting. That's a very interesting investment. And I, I, one thing I love what what you're doing is you appear to be just taking, if you may, being able to take the positives and advantage behind what's taking place to be not only a great place to work for, but but it's encouraging people to come to you, right? Because yeah. of the way how you're operating, I'm sure you're encouraging this with your investment companies is like, if you're thinking old school, so to speak, that everyone's just going to show up and, and be in there, you're not going to be able to get a significant part of the workforce, right? Yeah. Because, of, because of that mindset. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I, there was locally, there was a couple of utilities, you know, I, I don't want to give names, but one of the, one of the organizations said, if you continue to work from home, we're going to cut your pay 10%. And the neighboring utility had hundreds of applications yeah. <laughs> from that company because they're like, well, if that's what's going to happen, we're going to leave, you know, and it's, it's fascinating, right? Which once again, people are doing some hard, hard decisions as what to do, not to and, do. And the irony, and this is something we learned in DigitalOcean. So one of the big advantages between DigitalOcean and AWS in the very early days was the lock-in, right? Mm. Um, we just said to people, there's no contract, there's no lock-in. We totally believe in open source. We're not going to try and lock you in with technology or anything. If you want to lift and leave, that's up to you. And eventually we released Kubernetes and all these other tools that allowed you to kind of modularize your, your technologies and, and copy them elsewhere. And we found that, you know, the stickiness was there already. It, it, it didn't need to have these rules and guidelines to, to get people to stick to the product. And we got really great stickiness and, and just made for a happier customer. So if you reflect that on the workplace, it's the same thing. If, if you, the people who are going to come to work are going to come to work anyway. But if I like to be in the office nine to five every day, and then you tell me that now that's a rule and you don't have the option, then I inherently just feel bad about it. And I might go work somewhere else. I would still have come to the office every day. You didn't need to tell me that, but you know, it's kind of putting these rules and, and constraints on people I think, you know, the workforce in, in the US and, and, you know, a lot of the world, especially Europe as well, have become just more akin to the idea that, hey, if, if I can control my work environment, then I'm going to be more motivated, I'm going to produce better work, I'm going to be happier. And that could be in an office, or it could be in a workspace, or it could be at home, or it could be in a cafe, but everybody has their own, you know, optimal way of working. All right, let's go. I always like to flip. Oh, so how do you measure, before we go into the personal side, how do you measure success in your business ventures? So, you know, being a venture, it's difficult. It's a 10 year journey, right? Like you can have all these false signs of, of great success and, you know, you think you're doing great and then suddenly the world crashes on you and it all falls apart. So it's very, very difficult in the short term. I think the way we think about it is we've approached venture not in a capitalistic mindset, but rather in, we approach a different way. But this is a philosophy I've always used in my life, which is do what you love. And if you do it the best, the economics will follow. You don't have to try. Don't go out there just trying to get rich. Just find something that you love and do it the best that it can be done. So we think the same way. It's like our focus is how do we make founding teams successful? If we can be really good at helping founding teams become successful. It all starts with sourcing the best teams. 
but then ultimately it's about helping them through accelerating through the problems and helping them make the best decisions and all, all those pieces of it. Then the economics are just going to follow our portfolio is going to perform better. So we measure success in a few ways. First, we measure success around our engagement with, with the companies, our ability to actually have impact. So we measure, you know, how much we're doing for these companies and what it actually does for them. Those are more of the shorter term measures. We have an NPS with our founders of like 88 or something like that, which obviously is incredibly Very high. high. Yeah. Uh, and often we're told by our founders, even if we're not the largest investor, we're often told we're the most valuable investor, whatever that means. But it obviously... It's a qualitative measure, but it, it makes us feel good. But then over the longer term, what we begin to see is, are they, are they having an easier time raising capital beyond us? Are they getting valuations that are larger? Are they, how are they performing within the market as a whole? Ultimately to a point 10 years from now, when we look back and say, hey, was, did the portfolio outperform its peers? Right now, we're definitely top decile in terms of where our companies have performed to date. You know, Fund 2 is only two, three years old, so it's all relatively new, but we're definitely trending top decile. And we're seeing a number of our companies really kind of jump through, pierce through the veil. And there's no one company that is, you know, 100x that's driving everything. It is pretty broad in terms of all of our companies are doing pretty well. And we can see them all like piercing through the, the ceiling and, and beginning to do outsized rounds. So um, it's exciting to see those founders realizing success. And obviously we're only in the early innings of the of the journey. So we've got to kind of follow it through and, and see where it takes us over the next five, six years. Yeah, that's that's brilliant. Okay, thank you so much for that answer. All right, so you are a, well, once again, I'm, I'm curious, you appear based on your bio and everything you're talking about, you, you should be a very busy person. How are you managing this? You know, what type of habits are you putting in place so you could stay this top of your game? Yeah, it's funny because my co-founders or the co-founders at DigitalOcean we all did very, very well, obviously. And they always give me a hard time about why I'm working so hard. So <laughs> they send me invitations to do things in the middle of the week. I'm like, I'm the guy that has to work, unfortunately. But I don't know. It's something I do love to do it. And it, and it does keep me very busy. And, you know, I have a hard time not following through with something if I, if I feel like it's important or I'm excited about it. So I, I kind of commit myself. But, you know, what has changed in my life, I'm married with kids now, I've got two young daughters, greatest things in the world. And I do think about my health and my mental health as well as my physical health much more than I did before. I mean, I definitely have been through the doldrums when you're like head down working so hard. So I make it a ritual every morning. I, I section off a piece of the morning. I actually say I never book anything unless it's an absolute emergency. I never book anything before like 1030 in the morning. So uh, I you know, have my routine um, of whether it's taking my daughter to school. I'll always incorporate a physical Every morning of the week, I try to incorporate a physical activity. So whether it's tennis or have, you know working out with a trainer or doing something in the morning that's physical, that kind of gets my blood moving and gets me moving. And then I have found it so important to sit down and get a moment of time in the morning before all the mayhem begins to actually be able to settle my head, look through my emails, just get comfortable with the day. So I feel like that preparation in the morning, both physically, mentally, and then understanding what your day looks like has become so helpful and it allows me to be far more efficient in my day. You know, there was a time where I was up at five in the morning in the office by six and there till 10 at night and just like dealing with fires left, right and all over the place. And, and, you know, you just get less healthy, you have less energy, like everything begins to affect you. I also, what we implemented at M13 and it's really driven by COVID was a, um, 
daily wellness break hour where we could not book any internal meetings. Unfortunately, that often gets eaten up, but, but in the most part, we try and keep it on the calendars and try and say to everybody, take that hour, do personal work, go have lunch, do whatever it is you need to do, but try again and regroup yourself. And then I make a habit every evening, you know, wash the kids, put them to bed. You know, I always try and kind of make sure that these personal components of my life have committed time for me because those are the things that really settle me mentally and make me feel much more uh, at ease. And, you know, as a result, what I used to take do in 12 hours, I think I can do now in eight. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm just much more efficient about how I'm able to get through my day. I mean, part of it is also having amazing people around me. That helps significantly because it allows you to offload and there's definitely a point in everyone's career where you feel like you have to do everything. I definitely don't feel that way anymore. So offloading and, and you know, delegating things out is also a big part of how I try and approach workload. So how do you measure success on a personal basis? You know, grand, like macro, success to me is all about life comfort, not just for me, but for the people I love around me. Um, I'm not an, you know, yeah, I'm not an opulent person. I'm not like, going to go drive around in a Lamborghini and, you know, kind of do all these crazy things and ride by private boats and planes and stuff. I kind of just want to make sure that my family, myself, the people I love around me, we have the freedom of choice and we have the freedom to experience the world in its entirety. To me, success is having that freedom. You know, I get in the way of that sometimes with the work ethic. But the reality is I have much more of that now than I've ever had. I'm able to take extended periods of time if I need. I'm able to take my family to amazing places to experience amazing things. And, you know, we're, we're able to make choices in our lives that perhaps we wouldn't have been able to make 10, 20 years ago. And to me, that's really, that's success. At, at that point, there's not really much more you need. Anything beyond that is just about you know, achievement and kind of self pride of, oh, look at these things that I've just been a part of and learning and experience. But in terms of financial success, it really just is like, if you can do all the things you ever wanted to do, then what more do you need? That's, that's really my sign of success. Love it. That's a great answer. What's a book you recommend for our audience? Yeah. So you brought up this whole agile process and a book actually from, you know, I read maybe 10 years ago at this point, is uh, The Lean Startup by Eric Ries. I mean, everybody knows it. It's like commonplace at this point. But if anybody, I do come across young founders every now and then that haven't read it. And it's just such a good way of thinking about MVPs. You probably got it up there somewhere. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think it's back here. Uh, sure. Yeah, I'll, I'll promote it right here. But, but yeah, it's, it's just a great guiding post. I, I also really liked, and this is because it had such a personal connection, The Hard Thing About Hard Things mm. by Ben Horowitz. Love uh, it. Yes, that, yeah. that's, yes, yeah. You know, Ben Horowitz invested, obviously, in DigitalOcean and their story, their cloud story back in the day and all the characters that he builds into it. It's kind of like this epic business journey that's really interesting. It doesn't have a specific learning or a specific theme, but just gives you a really grand view of, of a tough journey to get through. And so I really enjoyed that book as well. Awesome. Those are, uh, love both those books and great suggestions. So Carl, where can people learn and find out more information? So LinkedIn is probably my most active environment. So you just look up my name in LinkedIn. Also m13.co is our website. There's a lot of information about the firm. And then every now and then I will dabble in Twitter, but I, I can't say I'm most apt at it. And that's Calamar NYC. But, uh, but I, you know, always welcoming DMs and stuff on Twitter as well. But LinkedIn is probably the best way to get hold of me. 
Perfect. Perfect. All right. Well, Carl, it's been a pleasure having the first Carl on, on our guest. And, and thank you so much for being a guest on the Measure Success Podcast. This is my pleasure. Thank you so much. And to all of uh, everyone who's listening, thank you for listening and wishing you the very best at measuring your success. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to the Measure Success Podcast. We'll see you again next time to learn from the best. Remember to subscribe now to get future episodes. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio.